Support for this podcast and the following message come from Humana. Employees are the heartbeat of your business. That's why Humana offers group dental, vision, life, and disability plans designed to protect them. Exceptional service, broad networks, and modern benefits. That's the power of human care. On April 3, 1973, a man stood on 6th Avenue in New York City, about to make a call. He was nervous. He was going to do something that had never been done before. His thoughts were racing. Is this thing going to work? This thing was a cell phone. It was massive, bulky, heavy. Would it make a connection? The man dialed a number written down in the little address book in his pocket. Then the person on the other end picked up. I said, hi, Joel, it's Marty Cooper. And he said, oh, uh, hi, Marty. And I said, Joel, I'm calling you from a cell phone, but a real cell phone, a handheld, personal, portable cell phone. This was the first cell phone call ever made, and it changed the world. Since then, this technology has completely revolutionized communications and our lives. I'm Mike and Scott, and this is Call Me Maybe, a special production from The Pulse at WHYY, exploring 50 years of cell phone technology and what's next. We'll talk about how this innovation came about and how it's now impacting our communities and potentially our health. To get started, let's hear more from the engineer who invented the cell phone and made that very first call, Marty Cooper. He's 94 now. In the late 1960s, Marty was working in the two-way radio business. Think walkie-talkies. It wasn't exactly thrilling stuff to Marty. It's actually a very boring business. My mother never understood what I did for a living. I tell her I'm in a two-way radio business, and she would yawn. But maybe this concept of using radio frequencies for communications could be spun into something way more exciting. Marty got an idea from Dick Tracy, the famous comic book detective who would talk to police through his wristwatch. Okay, chief. I'll get on it right away. Calling Joe Jitsu aboard SS Purlene. Come in, please. Two jewel thieves. Paris Marty wondered, could phones operate in the same way, be cordless, and go wherever we go? We found out that this is a whole different principle. The idea of a phone call, the idea of somebody that had a device that was their device, that was an extension of them. This was going to be life-changing. It really was going to be an important Think for humanity. Bell Systems had come out with a car phone in the 1940s. CL4 3592. This is Joe. Hello, Joe. This is Bill. Where are you boys now? On Route 30. The equipment took up a lot of space. It was heavy and expensive. But by the 1970s, the people at Bell were trying to make these phones more affordable, get them into the cars of more people. But for Marty, that just wasn't enough. We had been trapped in our homes and offices for 100 years with these wired phones. And now we're going to be trapped in our cars. And, and I just didn't believe that that was the future. Marty was an engineer for Motorola, a smaller telecommunications company, and they decided to support and fund his cell phone idea. In 1973, he and a team of engineers went to work. 
How did you envision this phone? What did you want it to look like, to be like? Well, uh, I was fortunate to have a, a group of extraordinary designers. And uh, these guys, in 1973, before even the idea, it was known to hardly anybody, came up with uh, designs for five different kinds of phones. And they predicted every phone that you could imagine. One of them had a slider, one of them had a folding phone, another one had what you'd call a capsule phone. And all of these were kind of complicated. And if we were going to do something as earth-shaking as making a brand new something, the worst thing it could do is make it so complicated it would break before you even had a chance to demonstrate it. Marty settled on a design they had nicknamed the brick. It was large, chunky. It looked a little bit like a shoe with an antenna coming out of it. The team was going to make two of them. This phone weighed uh, over two pounds, which is kind of incredible for something that was supposed to be handheld. It had a battery life of a half hour of talking. That was no problem at all, making because uh, you couldn't hold this phone up into your ear for a half an hour. It was so heavy. But uh, we made our point. And how did the name come about, cell phone? Yeah, I hate to say that. It was one of the worst decisions ever made because uh, cells have absolutely nothing to do with anything real. But the guy that came up with the idea of the technical idea of having a lot of people in a city talking at the same time divided the city up into cells. And the cells referred to the size of the area that can connect to one tower, not the phones themselves. So uh, we had the burden of calling this a cell phone for uh, 50 years. In Japan, they call it a handy phone. I think that's what they call it in, in Germany as well. You go to London, they call it a mobile. Those are much more descriptive words than a cell phone, aren't they? Trying to get the cell phone to work, Marty and the team had to overcome a lot of challenges. Cell phones tapped into a different radio frequency than walkie-talkies. And they required more channels to allow the conversation to flow naturally. The most we'd ever done before was six or seven channels. And we had to have talking and listening. We'd never had done that. Uh, two-way radios, they work so somebody talks and then they stop talking and then the other person talks. So the challenges were just enormous. Our team worked day and night. We stopped every bit of research in the company uh, for three months in order to create those two phones that we demonstrated. The deadline approached to try to make that first call and things came down to the wire. At midnight, the night before, the engineers and I were sitting in a hotel room making sure this thing would work and fixing problems. Marty was so nervous, he says he hadn't even thought about who he was going to call. At the last minute, he decided to call his competitor at Bell Labs, Joel Engel. The guy that is responsible for these car phones that I thought were so reprehensible. <laughs> and so I reached in my pocket for my phone book which gives you an idea of what ancient times these were. And I called Joel Engel. And remarkably, he answered, not his secretary, but Joel answered himself. I said, hi, Joel, it's Marty Cooper. And he says, oh, uh, hi, Marty. And I said, Joel, I'm calling you from a cell phone. 
but a real cell phone, a handheld, personal, portable cell phone. As you can tell, I was not averse to rubbing it in. <laughs> and uh, Joe said, uh, really? He was very polite. We conducted a conversation. And to this day, uh, Joel does not recall that specific call. And I guess I don't blame him. Did you have any idea how much of a genie you let out of the bottle that day? <laughs> like how big this would become? Yeah, of course we knew it was going to be big. The story that I told, uh, someday when you were born, you would be assigned a phone number. And if you didn't answer the phone, you would die. We knew that everybody would have a cell phone. But I remind you, this was 1973. The device that we built had hundreds and hundreds of parts in it that had to be hand-wired. There was no way it could be reproduced. Every bit of technology had to be found and, and reproduced for, in this one phone. So it was a technical marvel. When you thought about the, the cell phone in the early days, what was your hope it would bring to people? Was it the freedom to talk whenever they wanted, wherever they wanted? What did you envision as the upside? Well, of course, you got the basic principle right, the freedom to be anywhere and to be reached everywhere. But the nature of our two-way business it was improving productivity. And that's what we were convinced the phone was going to do. It was going to make people more productive. There was no doubt in our minds that this was going to be a huge business and that ultimately it would be the way of communicating. We couldn't envision things like messaging, chatting, searching the internet. There was, was no internet. Right. <laughs> but, uh, but we knew it was going to be a big deal. What kind of phone do you have now? What do you use? Well, so many people ask me that question. <laughs> you know, I, and if I'm going to be a reliable futurist, I have to know what all the phones are like. So I, I have two phones that I actually use. My latest one is a, an iPhone 14. And I also use a folding phone from uh, Samsung. And so uh, I try to use them both to understand uh, what the state of the technology is now. The only thing I can tell you about what I've learned is that we still have a way to go. I think phones are too complicated now. The way we use them is not very natural. Holding a phone up to your ear and with your elbow up in the air is not what you'd call a very natural way of talking. We have a ways to go. I think that the cell phone is still in its infancy. I think that the children of today's cell phone, uh, if I could use that analogy, are going to be used for things like connecting your body, measuring things on your body, understanding when you're starting to get sick, uh, talking to a computer somewhere that does a physical examination of you, not every year, but every 30 seconds, I believe that the cell phone is going to be an important part of eliminating disease. And I really mean that. And finally, where is the phone that you used to make the first phone call from? Oh, where, where is it today? Yeah. Oh, <laughs> it's funny. You, I have the insides of that phone in my office. And the other phone is in the hands of Don Linder. 
That's the engineer manager who oversaw the project at Motorola in 1973. So Don still has that original phone. Marty Cooper is an engineer, and he developed and built the first cell phone. This is Call Me Maybe, a special production from The Pulse at WHYY. We're exploring 50 years of cell phones and how they've changed our lives. We asked people what they remember about their first cell phones. We heard back from Mike Klein. He was an early adopter of that technology. I had one of those Motorola 2950 bag phones back around 1990. Uh, they plugged into the cigarette lighter and they sort of sat on the transmission hump. A connection was a dollar, and it was about a dollar a minute to make a call. I felt so cool, and it was the perfect companion to the pocket pager that my work gave me, and I felt so important. And now I'm realizing I'm recording this on a phone that does probably a thousand times more and weighs about a 50th of what one of those bag phones weighed. And here's Tony Sadowski. My first cell phone is laughable by today's standards. It was one of those little singular Nokia blue bar phones. The tiny dot matrix screen and the silver buttons on the front where if you did want to send a text message, you had to hit the numeric keys and cycle through the letters of the alphabet. So old school tech. I got it my senior year of college when I started my internship, but I just never saw the need for it. There was, there was always a phone in my room. There were phones all over campus. And I could always get back to somebody later. Emma Jensen got her first phone when she was in seventh grade. It was a flip phone. I love just being able to have a phone, being able to say I had it, because everyone in my grade at the time was starting to get their phone. So it was just like, yeah, I have one too. Yay. It felt like this is a marker that I'm growing up. Coming up. People have been worried about the radiation coming from cell phones and cell towers since these phones started to become ubiquitous. You know, headaches and cancer and um, oxidative stress impacts to sperm and so forth. Now a surprise court decision might open the door to new regulations on what is safe and what isn't. That's next. This is Call Me Maybe, a special production from The Pulse at WHYY. I'm Mike and Scott. We're looking at 50 years of cell phone technology and how these phones have changed our lives. What's next? We asked people what they remembered about their first cell phone. Hi, my name is Eve. I remember getting my first phone in third grade with my brother because he was getting his first phone. So we each got these sliding sidekick type looking phones. I felt very cool because I was the only kid in my class in third grade that happened to have a cell phone and I couldn't call anyone on it because I had no friends with cell phones. Carl Muth got his first cell phone when he was eight, the original iPhone. What I loved about it was just the touchscreen. I thought it was such a cool and unique new technology that really defined the phone for me. We also heard from Paul Parmalee, who got his first phone in 1999, but he never used it. Then his friends started to say, why do you even have this thing? You never turn it on. So he started making calls. 
forgetting that my initial plan probably only covered 100 minutes. So I went way over, and out of nowhere, I got a $400 bill or so. And I just remember thinking somebody at Sprint was probably like, oh, this guy finally made some friends. Cell phones have connected us to family and friends for decades. And the way they make that connection happen is through radio frequency radiation. Both the phones and the towers emit this radiation. Since the early days of wireless communication, some people have been worried about potential health risks, cancer, terrible headaches, or even behavior changes. There were lawsuits, arguments, and a lot of seemingly inconclusive studies. Now, with 5G, the much faster and more powerful fifth-generation mobile network, and the many cell sites it requires, those discussions are heating up again, and a recent major court decision could lead to new safety requirements around this type of radiation. Grant Hill has more. Maura Hahn and Mark Hotchkiss live in a small grayish ranch house in Long Beach, California. It could easily be mistaken for others in the neighborhood if it weren't for the front yard. Maura is an artist, and the yard seems somehow fitting. It's lush, filled with bushes and palms and a giant Australian pine tree. There's also this big metal pole, a streetlight, right on the sidewalk outside of the yard. If you turn around, that's the light post. It's been there since Mark and Maura moved in over 20 years ago, something they never really thought much about until they received a letter in 2021 from a company they had never heard of. It looked like junk mail. So it sat on the kitchen table for a couple of days, unopened. And then when Mark opened it, he goes, why didn't you open this? I'm like, it was just addressed to you, not both of us. And he goes, well, you should read it. So I read it. It's like, holy mackerel, really? It was a notice informing them that the pole outside, that big lamppost, would soon be equipped with a wireless transmission facility, a WTF for short. All part of AT&T's big 5G rollout in Long Beach. And it said, oh, by the way, there's a, a sign on the lamppost. Mora went out to the curb to check and... And yeah, sure enough. There was a sign, a simple flyer, facing outward toward the street. Since the 5G network was introduced nearly four years ago... More than 30 states have enacted legislation that makes it easier to install 5G cell sites like the one proposed for the poll in front of Mora's home. Mobile markets research analyst Jason Lee says the push boils down to three words, Internet of Things. So you're going to be able to connect more devices, more sensors, you know, upwards of a million connections in a you know, square mile far and away what, what you can currently. So the, the interesting mix of those three. Jason says the 5G network is not as much about cell phone connection as it is about the connection of almost everything else. Your car, your sprinklers, your toaster, allowing all of those things to be connected and accessible, controlled or programmed from anywhere. 5G is fast and powerful. It's the network needed to make all of this possible. The networks themselves are, you know, the first foundational piece. And and really what everybody's trying to figure out is, now what do we do with this? It opens up the possibility of constant information and control. Just take Long Beach, for example. Home to Mora and Mark, 
but also the second largest container port in North America, a crucial node in the global supply chain. More than 2,000 ships come through there a year, and on board many of them, sensors that capture highly detailed real-time information about weather conditions and traffic at sea. Information that allows these ships to find faster routes and become more efficient. With the help of 5G, the hope is to one day use that data to control entire fleets of unmanned ships from the shore. There's a lot of money at stake to see it through. Future business models. Which brings us back to that lamppost outside of Mora and Mark's house. Now a proposed 5G cell site. They had 10 days to file an appeal with the city, and the clock was ticking. Mark wasn't that worried about it at first. When we got the notice, it didn't bother me. Mark is an electrical engineer who once hardwired their entire house for internet access before making the switch to Wi-Fi. So at first, he didn't mind this technical upgrade right outside. But Mora was worried about what are the health effects of this. Mora, on the other hand, had long suffered from serious migraines, so much so that she had to retire from her job teaching art at a nearby college. In the days after they received the notice, Mora decided to consult her doctor about her migraines again. And during that consultation, he said something kind of strange. He suggested that her migraines could be related to something called electromagnetic hypersensitivity, or EHS. What about Wi-Fi? You know, that could cause it. Try to get rid of all your cellular stuff. Get rid of the walk-around phones. EHS is a little-known, under-researched, and controversial health condition, where people experience reactions to certain types of electromagnetic radiation, especially the kind that's emitted by cell phone towers or Wi-Fi. Mora looked it up online. There were quite a number of articles that said it's not real or it's, it's psychological or these people experience symptoms but could be from something else. So Mora and Mark decided to run a test of their own. They returned to Mark's old hardwired system in the house, went back to using a landline phone, no more wireless internet or devices. And within a matter of hours, Mora says her symptoms nearly disappeared. But now, this proposed 5G cell site, just about 25 feet from the window where she paints, it seemed to threaten her future well-being. Mark and Mora decided to file an appeal against the cell site. Mora's doctor even wrote a letter and explained her sensitivity to cell phone radiation, which was included in their appeal. Mora knew how all this looked, by the way, the convenient timing of her diagnosis. But she didn't care. It's the nail on the head there. I didn't care what people thought. I knew what I had experienced. They found an attorney and delivered their appeal, just in the nick of time. And uh, that's when it all started. A city employee told Mora not to get her hopes up. The way the city code was written, almost no one beats these things. As Mora prepped for her appeal, she kept researching. Tracking down experts... Um, asking questions, seeing who And she quickly discovered that the politics of cell phones, towers, and street poles extended way beyond city limits and decades into the past. President of the United States, Bill Clinton. It all started with the Federal Telecommunications Act of 1996, 
when Congress sought to create a seamless network of cellular communications from sea to shining sea. That meant while cities and towns could have a say in cell tower construction, they couldn't flat out refuse to build them. This law is truly revolutionary legislation that will bring the future to our doorstep. But turns out, many communities didn't want the future, at least not right at their doorstep. By the end of the 1990s, more than 600 towns across the country had placed moratoriums on building new towers, often citing fear of the unknown potential for long-term health effects of living near such cell sites. Because they are too dangerous. Back then, the New York Times described these efforts as guerrilla war, a losing one. As wireless communication exploded, the number of towers grew and grew. Now, it's four times higher than it was in 2000. And while activists continued the fight, arguing that we simply didn't know enough about the health risks, industry reassured the public that there was nothing to worry about, that federal guidelines, limits on exposure to radiation coming from these towers, protected people from harm. In 1996 was when the FCC propagated those limits, the guidelines that are still in force today. That's Theodora Scarato, executive director of Environmental Health Trust, a think tank that's been fighting the Federal Communications Commission over these health concerns for years. The FCC is not a health agency. Nonetheless, it's in charge of setting limits for cell phone radiation exposure, a determined safety threshold that's currently based on studies done by the Navy in the 80s. The studies that are put forward as the ones that underpin how they came up with the level of what is safe and what is not are these small animal studies. Very small. Five monkeys and eight rats, to be exact. Scientists saw behavioral changes when the animals were exposed to high levels of radiofrequency radiation, levels intense enough to heat their tissue, much like a microwave heats food. So in 1996, when the FCC created our current guidelines for cell phone radiation exposure, it focused singularly on preventing these thermal effects in people. But, of course, this was 1996, before cell phones had become ubiquitous. So in 2013, the FCC promised to reevaluate those guidelines, and the agency invited public comment. And they asked, should we change these limits? Are these limits adequate? This process went on for years as people like Theodora submitted evidence and studies that seemed to show that cell phone radiation well within the current limits could cause all kinds of health issues. You know, headaches and cancer and um, oxidative stress impacts to sperm and so forth. Among the work submitted was a 2018 study on cell phone radiation and cancer. Researchers with the National Toxicology Program were tasked by the FDA to create the largest animal study on radiofrequency radiation ever, 90 rats and mice. It took 10 years and cost $30 million. When it was done, the researchers said they found, quote, clear evidence of an association between cell phone radiation and heart cancer in rats. They also found some evidence of a link to brain cancer, and changes to DNA. But Theodora and researchers involved in the study say it all fell on deaf ears. Ultimately, the FCC decided not to change the guidelines and did not fully explain their reasoning. 
they just ignored so much of what we had put on the record. And it seemed pretty clear that we could sue at that point related to their lack of adequate review of the record. So we did. Theodora's group and others took the FCC to court to basically force them to explain why they had decided to keep the safety guidelines untouched. This was in 2019. Case number 20-1025 et al. Environmental Health Trust et al. And remarkably, Theodore's group and fellow petitioners, they won. The U.S. Court of Appeals, D.C. Circuit, determined that the FCC had acted in an arbitrary and capricious manner in their decision to maintain the limits. The court mandated the FCC to go back and reevaluate its guidelines based on the research submitted. And since then, it's unclear what has happened. The agency did not respond to my questions about the status of that process. To be fair, plenty of people and researchers maintain that the current exposure levels are safe, that the current guidelines are fine. I spoke to global experts who review this kind of evidence, who told me that there is no reason for concern here, that the studies that were presented in this court case were not conclusive. But people like Theodora see the court decision as a huge victory because it now provides ammo for people who are fighting towers and cell sites at the local level. People like Maura Han and Mark Hotchkiss. Can you hear me okay? Well, we can hear you, Larry. By March of 2022, their neighbors in Long Beach had rallied around their cause, flooding the city with comments against the cell site proposed by AT&T. For those who are wishing to give public comment, I caution you, I, I don't... Nearly 50 people tuned in to a virtual hearing for their appeal, including Theodora Scarado. Executive director of who now? Environmental Health Trust. Theodora was there to speak in support of Mora's health concerns, but also to talk about how her group's work related to the whole situation in Long Beach, explained their big win against the FCC in court. The city's attorney... It's legally irrelevant. He didn't really care. Sure, the FCC had to review its rules, but for now, the current ones were still in effect. We just follow the FCC's rules. We understand what the D.C. Circuit case meant for the FCC's need to change those rules going forward, but they haven't changed yet. Technically, the decision had no bearing on whether Long Beach should take action against the cell site. I don't want anybody on this call to think that we are skeptics about the effect of RF emissions. It's just irrelevant. Eventually, there was a motion to vote on whether to deny the appeal. It was a tie, four to four. The potential cell site now hung in legal limbo, both sides unclear how to proceed. But Mora's lawyer, Doug Karstens, was confident AT&T wouldn't go down without a fight. That all of this was much bigger than this one 5G site on a lamppost. That it was a matter of seeding ground. They don't want to set the precedent of moving it to accommodate one person because now they're going to have to, they think, you know, move it to accommodate everybody else. The company feared a domino effect, Doug thought. And since the hearing, others in Long Beach had come forward against cell sites near their homes. Both parties agreed to a temporary hold on a final decision regarding the streetlight. As they waited for the fog to clear, Mora and Mark prepared for the worst. Mora was so worried about the potential health effects, her migraines coming back, that they were getting ready to move. Then, the day came when the hold was to be lifted, March 1st of this year. 
No word on a final decision. Another week passed. Still nothing. Eventually, I reached out to speak with someone from AT&T about Mora and Mark's situation. The company didn't make anyone available, but a representative did give me some news. Quote, due to various reasons, AT&T is no longer planning to build a small cell site at that location. Mark and Mora's tactics seem to have worked. Hey, Grant. I called them to give them the news and get their reaction. It was more subdued than I had expected. Until the city and or AT&T reaches out to our attorney, we're just cautiously optimistic. Very cautiously. We're taking it with a grain of salt, knowing that it was a PR person talking to a reporter from where we heard it, so nothing's official. Right, our attorney hasn't. Finally, a few days later, Mark and Moore's attorney, Doug, reached out to Long Beach officials, asking if what I had heard from AT&T was true. The city confirmed it. The battle was over. Mark and Mora's big metal pole out front would remain just a big metal pole, a streetlight. And the all-but-inevitable future trespassing at their doorstep successfully shoot from their front yard. That story was reported by Grant Hill. Cell towers irk some people for different reasons, because they think they are eyesores. Think about a beautiful landscape, rolling hills, maybe some wildflowers, trees, and then smack in the middle of it, a massive tower. They are big and intrusive structures that change the scenery. There's an undeniable physical presence to them, and and because of the nature of radio communication and, and wireless communication, it needs to be above ground because it's not through cables. That's Jesse LeCavalier. He is the director of the Cornell University Advanced Urban Design Program in New York City. He's also an architect and writer. I think the question is, I think, implicit. What should we do about that? Like, is are we okay <laughs> with that? Does it matter? Is this sort of like the price of admission to be able to use these devices? Or can we ask more of these elements? Yeah. So is there a way to, to make them look prettier? Absolutely. And I think for me, it's about how do you create the incentive on the part of the provider to make that something that they have to do or care about. And so what are the different mechanisms we have available to us to demand a higher level of aesthetic investment? I mean, for me, a lot of it is about where these organizations put their resources and they tend to seek the paths of least resistance. So if there's not opposition to it, then that's great for them. If there's a lot of opposition then they have to think about an alternative. And so far, the alternatives tend to be kind of kitschy, kind of disguised towers as trees or cactuses or things like that. It seems kind of silly to try to make them look like a tree because they're not trees. And then when you try to disguise a tower as a tree, it just looks like a really, really ugly tree in my mind. You're right. It's in this kind of like kitschy space where it's like it's somehow very earnest trying to pretend it's not that, but it's almost, it becomes really kind of cartoonish because it's so obviously not the thing it is pretending to be. And I think part of that is maybe there's a calculation around like who the observer is. Oftentimes these are on sides of freeways or things like that. So, you know, at 60 miles an hour, do you see the difference between <laughs> a tree and this other thing? It's, it kind of becomes plausibly unnoticed, but they're kind of wearing a sign that says, don't look at me. 
Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking you could make it look like the Eiffel Tower or something cool. I mean, you could lean into the idea of it being a tower. Yeah, absolutely. Though there, one of a French writer once quipped that his favorite place to eat lunch in Paris is in the Eiffel Tower because it's the only place he doesn't have to see it. <laughs> and so I think, you know, at the time there were, just to use that example, there were times where things that we've sort of, you know, maybe have internalized or have collectively understood now to be iconic were at the time, you know, super controversial or perceived to be, you know, really incredibly ugly. Jesse says how we look at these cell towers is not just about the visual experience of their shape, but also... How do we make sense of what they are more fundamentally? Think about telephone poles. Jesse says when they first went up, people were not complaining about them because these poles symbolized progress. And so in the early days of telecommunication through like the telegram or the telephone, there was something really exciting about a telephone pole because this was the signal of you being connected to this brand new system and you were at the cutting edge. This was like incredibly exciting. You had a you had this line of wire that connected you to the town next to you or to the city on the other side of the coast or to the city on the other side of the ocean. And these were like incredible moments of transformation. So I don't think that front of mind for people was that like it was not pretty enough. It was more like this is amazing because now I can talk to someone I've never been able to talk to. So I think there's this balance between the kind of aesthetics, what we might call the kind of prettiness of it, but then also the aesthetic dimension of it, which is about signaling a deeper set of cultural ambitions and alignments. Jesse Le Cavalier is the director of the Cornell University Advanced Urban Design Program in New York City. You're listening to Call Me Maybe, a special production from The Pulse at WHYY. I'm Mike and Scott. The Pulse is a weekly health and science show, and you can find us every week wherever you get your podcasts. Coming up, the future of cell communication and connecting people who don't have access. You don't know how painful it is to, you know, just have to work so hard every day just to get a little bit of connectivity to uncensored internet. That's next. This is Call Me Maybe, a special production from The Pulse at WHYY about the 50th anniversary of the first cell phone call. I'm Mike and Scott. We're looking at how wireless communication has changed our lives and what might be next. About 10 years before Marty Cooper made the first cell phone call, there was another groundbreaking development in telecommunications. Good evening, Mr. Vice President. This is Fred Capel calling from the Earth Station at Andover, Maine. The call is being relayed through our Telstar satellite, as I am sure you know. How do you hear me? You're coming through nicely, Mr. Capel. Well, the first telephone message in the world, as a matter of fact, over an active satellite. This was the first satellite call ever. It was made in 1962. Which is another first in our conquest of space. 
For decades, satellite communication relied on satellites that were more than 20,000 miles away in geostationary orbit. Because of this distance, communication was tedious. It was slow and expensive. But now, startups like Elon Musk's Starlink are betting on satellites that are circling in Earth's lower orbit, much closer to our planet. Eventually, this could mean that all smartphones could connect to these satellites and work virtually anywhere on Earth. Already, satellites are bringing wireless service and the Internet to millions of people all over the world. It's been used by researchers in Antarctica and the Ukrainian military. In countries like Iran, where there are Internet shutdowns and digital censorship, satellite communication could bring a taste of freedom. Alan Hinich has more. Protests have been raging in Iran for over six months, and the chant, Zan Zandagi Azadi, Women, Life, Freedom, is heard around the world in solidarity. And protests in Iran are intensifying over the death of 22-year-old Masa Amini. She was arrested by the country's so-called morality police. Hundreds of protesters have been killed, tens of thousands arrested. The Iranian government is cracking down hard on the movement, and part of their strategy is to control the flow of information using internet shutdowns and censorship. A digital wall that makes it extremely difficult to access foreign websites, social media, and secure messaging apps. Almost all messengers apps like Telegram, WhatsApp, all social medias like Twitter, Facebook, anything are blocked. Streaming sites like Netflix, Hulu, they are blocked. Outside news like CNN, Fox, anything you can think of are blocked. This is Payam, a coder and cryptocurrency miner in Iran. We're not using his last name to protect him from harm. He set up a private server for his extended family to access the internet. For the new Iran revolution, I'm trying my best to help uh, people access unrestricted internet. We're just trying our best to bypass both sides restrictions. In 2022, the human rights group Access Now documented 18 internet shutdowns in Iran, nearly all during nationwide protests. These shutdowns and restrictions make it really hard for protesters to organize or for journalists to expose human rights abuses. But beyond that, it's also become an unbearable daily hassle for people just trying to make a living using the internet. That's Payam's sister, Azadeh. She's a weaver and textile designer. She recently stepped down from a university teaching position in solidarity with the protests. Azadeh runs her own clothing brand that sources fabrics from remote villages. It's all online, and she reaches customers using Instagram and WhatsApp, which are now blocked by the government. It dramatically slowed down her sales. Other business owners she knows were affected by this as well. She says it crushed what would have been a revival of traditional Iranian crafts. It felt like looking at a desert and seeing small sprouts growing out of the barren land and feeling the arrival of spring. But then a concrete wall was suddenly raised. It felt like bumping into that wall. Those artists had all made plans. They were truly hopeful and had lots of ideas and dreams to fulfill, all of which came to an end, as if the dry, lifeless desert came into view once again. In order to get around these restrictions, the majority of Iranians use VPNs, or virtual private networks. These are usually paid apps that can add online security, privacy, and even trick your internet service provider into thinking that your phone is in a different country. But the government is cracking down more on those too, 
And as a result, it's gotten harder and harder to find VPN apps that actually work. Man, it's a uh, it's a serious problem. I have seen seen screenshots of people's phones that are just like tens of different VPNs, and it takes sometimes hours to open these VPNs, test them out one by one to see which one which one's working today and which one's not working. That's Reza Ghazinouri. He's a security program manager and lives in the U.S. now. The way he describes VPNs makes it seem like everyone has to be their own telephone operator, switching app to app. You don't know how painful it is to, you know, just have to work so hard every day to just to get a little bit of, like, connectivity to uncensored internet. He became an expert in online security and telecom, not out of personal interest, but because he had to as a student activist in Iran. My background is actually in humanities and social sciences, but I had to learn these things to basically support activists. Just a month before defending my thesis, I was expelled from the university for my activism and then later had to flee the country to avoid arrest. Since fleeing Iran in 2011, Reza has helped support nonprofits that promote an accessible and open internet in Iran. As part of those efforts, he wants to help find alternatives to VPNs. And diversity really matters because no, like what's working today is not guaranteed to work tomorrow. Clear. Reza has his eyes on satellite networks like Starlink and Kuiper that could potentially leap over restrictions instead of relying on VPNs to sneak through. Go for lunch. But there's a catch. You can't connect to these satellites directly with a smartphone yet. If you want to use Starlink, you have to buy a $500 user terminal dish that's about the size of a briefcase and has to be set up outside. This is the biggest barrier in countries like Iran, where the terminals have to be smuggled across the border in a process that's dangerous and expensive. I'm actually part of a team that is sending a Starlink terminal to Iran. There are like, I think already like 200 or 300 active inside the country. For a country with almost 90 million people, a few hundred terminals seems like a drop in the bucket. But for now, Reza sees it as a way to get unrestricted internet directly into the hands of journalists and activist leaders. It just denies the regime the immunity of like total internet shutdown because like their dream scenario in such cases is just to kill as many people as they want without the world knowing about it. And if there are hundreds of reporters in the country with with such with Starlink terminals who can send videos of what's happening inside the country, it does some damage control. So in the short term, that's our goal. But we also have more ambitious goals, like mesh networks, for example, is one of them. Reza is referring to a network scheme where people can connect their routers to spread and share internet access with more users. So if you create an equivalent of that in Tehran, let's say, and then some of the nodes in this network are connected to Starlink terminals and have access to internet, then millions of people might be able to have access. Still, satellite internet feels like a faraway dream to Payam, the coder and crypto miner in Iran. Today I checked some underground resellers for if I can get a terminal. Uh, which they are asking for over $1,500. I think it's triple the real price, and uh, there is always risk of getting caught. 
He worries about the Iranian government confiscating terminals. They may also try to jam satellite signals over cities. Geopolitical tensions could heat up to the point where providers limit or cut off service, which happened with Starlink in Ukraine. So there are lots of potential challenges, but Reza Ghazinuri has high hopes that satellite internet will become accessible one way or another. He points to an example, the way satellite TV receivers have caught on in the country over the last 20 years. Initially, they were really expensive. It were, they were really hard to get. And they, the regime tried very hard to crack down on them. As the receivers got cheaper and easier to install, there were just too many. The regime couldn't keep up anymore. And now Reza says almost everyone has them. You can confiscate hundreds of them. You can arrest hundreds of people. When the numbers go really high, they'll have to give up the way they did with satellite TVs. Soon enough, our smartphones may be able to connect directly to satellites without the need for user terminals. The iPhone 14 is already designed to do this in emergencies. And if more phones are built with the same capabilities, it would be a real game changer in Iran. For people like Payam and his sister Azadeh. As for these days, we pour our blood, sweat and tears into our work because we feel committed to making progress, to improving our circumstances. There's always a heavy price that we're ready to pay to make our lives better and are actually paying it with our heart and soul. It's not something you can get used to. That story was reported by Alan Hinnich. This has been a special production from The Pulse at WHYY. You can find us every week wherever you get your podcasts. Our health and science reporters are Alan Yu, Liz Tong, and Grant Hill. Marcus Biddle is our health equity fellow. Alan Hinnich is our intern. Charlie Kyer is our engineer. Nicole Curry is our associate producer. Lindsay Lazarski is our producer. I'm Mike and Scott. Thank you for listening. This message comes from NPR sponsor, the Schizophrenia and Psychosis Action Alliance, working to shatter barriers to treatment, survival, and recovery so that people with schizophrenia can thrive. They're one of the few advocacy organizations focused only on schizophrenia and psychosis, and as a result, have a deep understanding of this brain disease. They actively partner with like-minded organizations to conduct research, improve access to resources, and empower individuals with schizophrenia and their families. More at WeCanThrive.org. Support for NPR and the following message come from the American Cancer Society. Dr. Alpa Patel leads a team that researches cancer risk factors, and she shares how her team makes an impact. We always do what we like to think of as actionable science. So the work that we do makes its way to things like nutrition and physical activity guidelines for cancer.org, where millions of people come each year to learn about how they can better prevent cancer. To learn more, go to cancer.org. This is my voice. I can tell you a lot about me, and I'm not changing it for anyone. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of NPR episodes centered on Black experiences. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts.